After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two uh, of his young men and his son Isaac. He split uh, wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, uh, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived, when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Uh, then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, The Lord Will Provide. So today it is said, It will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offerings as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offering will possess the gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offerings because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men, and they got up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham sold it in Beersheba. Now after these things, Abraham was told, Milcah has also borne sons to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, his brother Buz, Camel, and father to Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jedflap, and Bethul. And Bethul fathered Rebekah. Milcah um, bore eight to Nahor, Abraham's brother, his concubine, whose name was Rima, also Tabah, Gehem, Tehesh, and Makkah. Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome again to 645, uh, especially if you're new with us this evening. Great to have you with us as we uh, listen to God's word together. That passage, Genesis 22, is really a shocking passage to read, isn't it? Um, not least because obviously the names Uz and Buzz have fallen out of fashion um, when it comes to twins. But um, Genesis chapter 22 is a shocking passage. And I don't know if you've read it too many times now, so you're kind of overly familiar with it, too familiar with it. But if you can imagine reading it for the first time, and perhaps some of you here, this is the first time you've read it. If you can imagine reading it for the first time, it's a frightening story, really, isn't it? Uh, like a suspenseful kind of thriller. It actually reminds me of the time uh, my family, we visited, um, I grew up in the Southern Highlands, we visited Fitzroy Falls. Does anyone know Fitzroy Falls? Okay, it's a massive waterfall. 
80-meter uh, drop, I think it is, 80-meter drop, uh, straight, down a, straight down a cliff face. Uh, I actually was too young to remember this. The, uh, I, this is kind of a shared memory of my dad retelling this story with kind of horror, and his, uh, he still wakes up in cold sweats in the middle of the night um, remembering this story. Somehow my sister, who was just a toddler at the time, had managed to get out past the railings... Uh, over Fitzroy Falls, okay, and she was about a meter from the cliff face, and my dad sort of suddenly realized, and he's thinking to himself, you know, like, what, um, you know, and he's thinking, I can't scare her, you don't want to scare her, I can't, freak, I don't want her to freak out, like, she can't run away, how do I grab her, or come back, you know, come back, sweetheart, um, and he still, yeah, wakes up terrified. And look, I think Genesis 22 is a bit like that. That's what I'm reminded of as we read. Because, because what's happening is Isaac is on the precipice of death, isn't he? And as we watch the kind of story unfold, we're meant to be feeling, we're meant to be thinking, are we about to watch Abraham kill his own son? Could this be happening? And the relief when the angel stops him. You know, you all sort of gasp for, for breath. Uh, at the very last minute, at the 11th hour, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch the boy. Don't lay a hand on him. And look, when we put this passage uh, in context, the intensity of the whole thing um, is, of course, amplified. Because it's not, this, this is not just a story about a family who happened to go through a tragic event. Uh, if we put this passage in context or a, a difficult test, if we put this passage in context, this is really a story about the origins of everything. This is the family that God has promised to bless the nations through, and so what happens to them is massively significant for us. Now, last week we looked at chapter 19, and so I don't want to skip over chapters 20 to 21, even though uh, chapter 22 is where we'll spend most of the time, it's the, it's the climax. But first of all, if you just flick back to chapter 20 with me, uh, let me read from verse 1. Okay, from there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he lived in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, had Sarah brought to him. Now, if you have been with us over the last few weeks, this scene will sound very familiar. Uh, not necessarily because uh, we read it together, but because Abraham's done this before. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, we read that when Abraham entered Egypt, he did the same thing. He passed Sarah off as his wife, and Pharaoh's officials brought Sarah uh, into his household. So in chapter 20, it's almost an exact rerun. It's deja vu. Abraham hasn't learned his lesson. Frankly, he's still treating Sarah horrendously. But the root of the problem is that he still hasn't learned to thoroughly trust God. Abraham fears men more than he fears God. Uh, what does Abraham have to fear, you see, when he, when he runs into, uh, into Pharaoh or into Abimelech? If God is with him... Uh, and God is with him. God has promised him fame, land, offspring, blessing, abundant blessing. If God is with him, uh, who could stand against him? All he needs to do is trust God. But instead, his actions on both of these occasions expose the fact that he's afraid. That somehow God's promises to him could be stifled. 
But we need to remember that these chapters are, are not primarily focused on Abraham's faithlessness, but on God's faithfulness. Uh, in verse 3, God appears to Abimelech and warns him not to touch Sarah on pain of death because she is married to Abraham. Literally, verse 3 says, uh, you will die on that woman, for she is a married woman. Meaning, you will die on account of that woman, but you can see the kind of play on words, don't touch that woman, you will die on account of her, you will die on her. So in verse 3, God kind of blows Abraham's cover, as it were. But it's not in order to punish Abraham. Quite the opposite. He is trying to protect Abraham. He is committed to blessing Abraham and to be faithful to his promises. I will curse those who curse you, God had said. And even those who unintentionally sin against you, I think is kind of what we're getting here. If Abimelech were to sleep with Sarah, even without knowing that what he was doing was wrong... That would be a sin against Abraham. And God, because of his faithfulness, because of his commitment to keeping his promises, is making sure that that doesn't happen. He doesn't want Abimelech to suffer on account of uh, Abraham's godlessness. He wants to, but, but he will protect Abraham at all costs. So this whole chapter is really a powerful reminder that God is committed to his promises to Abraham. Come what may, Abraham may be faithless, but God is faithful. Abraham's blessing is not contingent on his performance, but on God's commitment to his promises. All right, now skip over to chapter 21. Of course, we can't, can't go through everything. There will be a, a short question time just before I um, finish in prayer. So if you've got any questions, feel free to kind of save them till then. But skip over to chapter 21. In chapter 21, after a long time coming, finally Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And I do mean a long time coming. Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, God promised a seed, an offspring, who would rescue, God, uh, who would rescue God's people from the clutches of the devil, crushing the serpent's head. And so in chapter 4, we start looking for the offspring. Uh, is it Cain? No. Is it Abel? No. We start seeing lists of genealogies, family trees. Who's the offspring? Is he the offspring? Is he the offspring? No. And then at the end of chapter 11, Abraham comes at the end of one of these genealogies, these lists. And we find out about Sarah, his wife Sarai. And verse 30 says, Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. In other words, uh, you know, no hope here. Keep looking. Uh, no hope for human flourishing here. No hope for the seed here. We'll have to look elsewhere. But then in Genesis 12, the miracle of the whole story is that God has chosen this woman, this, this couple. They will have the offspring. Through this barren woman, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through her offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, he will be the seed who will crush the serpent. But by the time you get to chapter 21, Sarah is 90 years old and is still childless. And it feels like we've all been waiting as long as she has. Like It feels like the story, you're thinking, when is this going to come? Event after event, new scene after new scene comes. But you never forget that you're still looking for the seed and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And then in verse, uh, in, in verse 1 of chapter 21, finally, 
the Lord came to Sarah, uh, Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Uh, Notice once again the emphasis is on God's faithfulness to his promises. Uh, The Lord came to Sarah as he had said. The Lord did for Sarah what he had promised and so on. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting a long time for this child. But in the end, everything happened just as God said. And look at Sarah's response in verse 6. Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And everyone who hears will laugh with me. You might remember laughter uh, has been a big theme in Abraham's life. The name Isaac means laughter. And the thing about laughter is it's ambiguous. You can laugh in delight or you can laugh in derision. And when Sarah says in verse 6, everyone who hears will laugh with me, the Hebrew is slightly more ambiguous than the English. It could be everyone will laugh with me. It could be everyone will laugh at me. You see, they're both sort of perfectly legitimate translations and you kind of got to pick one, but you can see how they mean quite different things. Is everyone going to laugh with Sarah or is everyone going to laugh at her or or, or is there going to be division in the responses? Well, check out verse 8. The child grew and was weaned and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, literally laughing. It's just the same word. See, she saw uh, Ishmael, sorry, she saw Ishmael laughing, the one Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. And so you see how we begin to see the rise of the kind of hostility between these two um, sons of Abraham. Isaac was meant to bring laughter. And he does bring laughter to Ishmael. But Ishmael didn't laugh at the birth of Isaac in delight. He, he laughed scornfully. He's mocking. Uh, in derision. He thought the whole thing was a joke. Ridiculous. He laughed at this old, this old couple having this you know, new little toddler around or whatever, this new little baby around. The whole thing is ridiculous. And this is not a minor offense. The hostility between Ishmael and Isaac is actually picked up on in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians. And Paul explains how Ishmael's mistreatment of Isaac here is actually part of a much bigger clash between the sons of Abraham, between Abraham's illegitimate sons and the children God had promised him. Which, of course, is a massive issue still today. I I don't know if any of you were up at um, CMS Summer School at the beginning of the year. Some of us went up there, big conference to kind of lift our eyes to the nations and think about missionaries and so on. The speaker this year was William Taylor. And he was preaching on Genesis, so this series has been easy. Um, (laughs) Don't go and listen to his. It's it's mine. Um, I I taught him everything he knows. No. but he pointed out that even today, of course, over 50% of the population of the world claim to be sons of Abraham in one way or another. Uh, Muslims, Christians, and of course, Jews, although a much smaller number. But of course, not all sons of Abraham are legitimate. 
That's exactly the point of Genesis 21. And in Galatians 4, Paul explains the heart of the difference. So I wonder if you'd um, flick over to Galatians chapter 4. It's on page 1074, if you've got a church Bible, because I'm going to start from verse uh, 22. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born according to the impulse of the flesh. You remember Ishmael was born because Abraham and Sarah concocted this idiotic plan that Abraham would sleep with, his, uh, with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. Okay, so born according to the impulse of the flesh, born uh, to a slave, while the one by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things are illustrations. For the women represent the two covenants, uh, two ways of relating to God. Okay? One, one covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, there are a few details there, but in case you missed it, he's talking about Judaism, right? And how even though the Jews are biologically sons of Abraham, in fact, biologically sons of Isaac, spiritually speaking, they are sons of Hagar. Spiritually speaking, they are in slavery to sin, in slavery under the law. And and so he goes on. Now, I'm going to skip down to verse 28. Now, you brothers, talking to Christians, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. See, you brothers, whether you're Jews or Gentiles, you brothers have been born by God's promise. You've been born because of God's promise. So you're like Isaac. And then verse 29. Just as then the child born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We need to resist those who will take us back to slavery under the law, slavery under sin. That's Paul's point in the book of Galatians. So we'll stop there for a minute. You see how Paul understands what is happening in Genesis 21. These two sons of Abraham represent entirely different ways of knowing and relating to God. One is a slave, the other is free. One is the result of a fleshly impulse. The other is a result of a promise, he's born of the Spirit. And that's why Paul says, one persecuted the other. That's why Ishmael laughed mockingly, laughed scornfully at Isaac. The child born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the Spirit. Paul says this is the crucial difference between illegitimate children of Abraham and the true true children of Abraham even today. There are those born of the promise and those born of the flesh. And that's why illegitimate children or uh, illegitimate sons of Abraham will always persecute the children of the promise. And we could use that to talk about uh, the state of the Jews, Islam, but even within Christianity itself. 
you know, 30, 33% of the world or something claim to be Christian. But who are legitimate sons of Abraham? Who are those that share the faith of Abraham and who are illegitimate, just claiming uh, this heritage that they don't really um, share? We need to drive them out. Uh, not, not put up with their lies. All right, now in the second half of Genesis 21, let's flip back to Genesis 21. We run into Abimelech again. At first, the scene um, sounds rather kind of ominous. Uh, if you look at verse 22, Abimelech arrives accompanied by Fickle, the commander of his army. And you're thinking kind of, we know how Abraham has treated this guy really badly. So has he come to kind of take his revenge? But in the end, the whole scene really ends up reinforcing the point of the first half of the chapter. God's promises to Abraham were not for his biological family. God always had a plan to bless the nations through Abraham, to bless those who had faith, to bless those who turned to him. And you look at Abimelech, and that's exactly what happens. When Abimelech arrives, he says to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants as I have been loyal to you. So you will be loyal to me and to the country uh, where you are a foreign resident. And Abraham said, I swear it. At first, it seems rather innocuous, but you see, it's a remarkable scene, really. Abimelech is a foreign king, the king of Gerar. He's a Philistine. And quite explicitly, he makes this covenant with Abraham because he knows that through Abraham, he is actually dealing with God. And he says to Abraham, God is with you. And he thinks to himself, I want God to be with me. And he knows that if he wants God on his side, he needs to somehow bind himself to Abraham. So in this little scene, I take it we get a little glimpse that God's blessing will go to the Gentiles through Abraham. And again, that just reinforces the point of the previous section, doesn't it? It's through faith, uh, not through biological kind of heritage. Uh, We won't go back to Galatians now, but of course, this is another major theme of that book. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 8. The scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. That's how the blessing works. You receive it by faith, not by some biological connection. Okay, so finally we arrive at chapter 22. This chapter is in many ways the climax of Abraham's whole life. No other occasion shows so clearly his faith in God's promises, his grasp of the gospel. Verse 1 tells us that the whole thing is a test. It's not that God doesn't know whether Abraham believes or not. But rather, this is a trial through which uh, Abraham's faith will be refined. And it's a trial through which uh, Abraham's faith will be demonstrated for our sakes. And in that way, it gives us the clearest picture of what it means to be a child of Abraham. And so the challenge this evening is, you know, as we look at this, uh, to compare ourselves to Abraham in many ways, to think, is this my faith? Am I a child of Abraham? Am I trusting God? It ought not to be that we hold Abraham at arm's length and say, he's a hero. 
We've seen he's not. He's not spectacular. He's not particularly godly in some kind of remarkable way. He, he messes up all over the place. But what we see is a man of faith, a man who trusted God. And here's where we see it most clearly. So in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. It's an extraordinarily confronting command, isn't it? And uh, God doesn't hold back. He quite deliberately emphasizes the pain involved in this test, doesn't he? Take your son. Not just your son, your only son. Notice Ishmael's completely out of the picture. Your only son, Isaac. Laughter, your source of joy, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. This is the second time in the book of Genesis that we've heard about uh, a burnt offering. Does anyone know the first time? Back in chapter 8. The last time we heard about a burnt offering was back in chapter 8. After the flood, Noah offered a burnt offering on an altar. And we were told, so it's really important for understanding what burnt offerings are about. We were told there that the Lord was soothed, pacified, quieted by the pleasing aroma of the offering. See, his anger was soothed. He, he was irritated, angry, and his anger was soothed by the aroma of the burnt offering. And he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. You see, the idea of a burnt offering is that God's burning anger against sin is pacified through the burning of the victim. See, God's burning anger against sin is spent on the victim As the victim is burned. The animal burns so that we don't have to. That's what the burnt offering is about. Well now God commands Abraham to offer his one and only beloved son Isaac as a burnt offering. What would you do? I'm almost tempted to chuck it out to you. (laughs) There's too much to think about. What? What would you do? Abraham got up early in the morning. I wonder if you would have slept in. It's actually a repeated refrain throughout this, um, this section. Abraham got up early in the morning. You see, he's eager to obey God's word, isn't he? He's ready to act in faith. He saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Just take note of that last line. We'll come back to you. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac In his hand he took the fire and the sacrificial knife, and the two of them walked on together. That's another line that's repeated later on. 
the two of them walked on together. The whole scene is very slow and steady um, and full of suspense. I, I do think of it like um, like a parent. I don't know how your parents um, disciplined you or if this is still happening, but um, my parents always used to go, I will give you three. And they go, one, two, two and a half, two and three. You, do you know what I mean? They'd, they'd always... <laughs> Because no one knew what happened when you got to three. But it was bad news. And no one wanted to get there. And in a way, that's this whole chapter is like that. It's kind of everything stretched out. He went over and got the wood. He went over and did this. Let me tell you all the other details because we don't really want to tell you about... Do, do you know what I mean? We're kind of all moving very, very slowly, very nervously towards the climax. It's as if we can't believe this is happening and no one wants to get to the end. And then throughout the passage, the intimacy of their relationship is emphasized again and again. They walked on together. The two of them walked on together. We know that they're father and son, but we're told that again and again and again. Surely a father could not do this to his son. Uh, Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. It's an innocent question in verse 7, isn't it? Daddy, have we forgotten the lamb? You can imagine Abraham's 100 years old. He's probably forgotten the lamb a few times. Like I don't know, he's probably forgotten a few other things as well. Daddy, you know, have we forgotten the lamb again? What was Abraham thinking, though, in verse 8? What was Abraham thinking in verse 8? Does he know that he's not going to have to go through with it? Or is he bluffing? Or is he just sort of hoping? Or is he acknowledging that Isaac is the lamb God has provided? I think that's where we finally have to come down on. And actually, in verse 8, it is, again, if you look carefully... You start to wonder, in verse 8, is Abraham addressing Isaac when he says at the end there, uh, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son? Or is he explaining what the burnt offering is? It's actually, again, slightly ambiguous. God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. You, my son, you are the lamb for the burnt offering. Uh, Not that he would have, you know, not that Isaac would have known what was going on, I suppose, but we we can't help but notice as we read through and think, yes, this is the offering. This is the offering. We know he's the one about to be sacrificed. Abraham knows. This is the miraculous boy of a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. This is how all the nations will be blessed. And God has just told him it's through his sacrifice. So through the sacrifice of this promised offering, uh, all the nation, uh, promised offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And they walk on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac And placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Then he said, uh, he, he replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand. You know, we, we do. We all take a deep breath. Hearts racing. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Look carefully at that verse. That's what this whole test has been about. Does Abraham fear God? Uh, just cast your eye back to chapter 20, verse 11. It's on the same page in my Bible. Um, chapter 20, verse 11. Actually, let me pick it up from verse 8. God has just appeared to Abimelech in a dream and said, Stay off that woman. Don't touch Sarah or you'll die. So verse 8, early in the morning. Abimelech got up, called all his servants together, and personally told them all these things. And the men were terrified. The men were afraid. So you notice that through this whole scene, the men have become afraid of God. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and on my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Abimelech also said to Abraham, What did you intend when you did this thing? Abraham replied, I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. So you see, through Abraham's actions in verse 8, we were told Abimelech's men came to fear God. They were terrified. And then in chapter 21, we, we see that Abimelech himself fears God. He comes to Abraham to make sure that he secures, kind of as it were, God on his side. He wants to make a covenant with Abraham because he knows God is with him. He was terrified when he had the dream of God uh, t- telling him to stay off Sarah. He would be. But the big question we're left with throughout these chapters is, uh, as we see Abraham treating Abimelech so abominably and his wife Sarah, is Abraham, does Abraham fear God? Is Abraham rightly afraid? Because he doesn't seem to show any fear of God in these chapters. He's more afraid of men. He's more afraid of Abimelech. Finally, in chapter 22, we know. The truth comes out, as it were, through this test. Abraham does fear God. He's learned to fear God. And he's willing to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved, in obedience to God. I wonder if you've learned that lesson yet. What are you willing to sacrifice? Hebrews chapter 11 describes Abraham like this. And it's in a, in a chapter all about witnesses who, who testify to us about faith and, and how God is faithful, and so we should trust him. It tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and he was offering his unique son, the one it had been said about, your seed will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. And as an illustration, an illustration for us, he did receive him back. In other words, Abraham was willing to go through with it. It's not that he was just bluffing or hoping against hope, as it were, that the whole thing would be called off. No, he was willing to go through with it. He was expecting to kill his son. He believed that his son was the lamb God had provided to turn away his wrath. 
But he reasoned that God could raise the dead. And that his son, therefore, would see his offspring and prolong his days. God had promised that Isaac would be, would have offspring, would be the father of a great multitude and so on. Abraham knew he had to kill him. But he reasoned that God would still keep his promises, that God would raise the dead. That's why he said to his servants, do you remember, as he parted with them and continued out to kill his son, he said to his servants, we will return to you. I'll kill him, but we'll come back. See, Abraham believed God could raise the dead. And after all, this is not some kind of empty hope. It's not just sort of, it's not a hunch. This is the son that was brought out of his wife, Sarah, all shriveled up, as she describes herself. This is his very own son. He, he talks about himself as, you know, 100 years old, as good as dead. He knew that if God could give them the son in the first place, then God could raise the son to life again, uh, even out of death. And I hope that kind of faith sounds familiar to you. Because Abraham, for all intents and purposes, you see, was a Christian. Or rather, we are children of Abraham. He trusted God that through his offspring, specifically through the death and resurrection of his offspring, God's wrath would be turned aside and all the nations would be blessed. Does that sound a bit like what you believe? Of course, the final offspring that God sent is is the Lord Jesus. In the end, the child of Abraham through whom this blessing would come was not Isaac. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Isaac in the end is is only one of us, one of us. Offspring of Abraham, we share the faith of Abraham, but we're trusting in the lamb God provided. This uh, picture here is a wonderful image of what the Bible talks about when it talks about substitution. It's only only a, a faint shadow of the true lamb God would provide. But it tells us, in a nutshell, the, the message of the gospel, doesn't it? In the end, God would offer up his son, his one and only son, whom he loved so that his wrath might be turned aside. And all the sons of Abraham throughout the nations, all those men and women who share Abraham's faith in God's provision might be spared death and raised to life. Let me close in prayer. Gracious Father God, thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is Abraham's, the, the seed we've been looking for, the seed that you promised in Genesis, the seed that you promised to Abraham. He's the one who's the sacrifice, who turned away your wrath, who rose again so that we might have new life, so that we might be raised to eternal life and live in fellowship with you forever. Father God, we pray for ourselves, that you would grow us in faith, for the lost who we are seeking to reach in this, um, in this area and in, in our 
neighbors and networks and all that kind of stuff, all of our friends and family, we pray that they would come to faith, that they would become children of Abraham, sharing his faith, and so being saved along with us through his son, through your son. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.